everybody, and welcome to Adjusted. I'm your host, Greg Hamlin, coming at you from beautiful Birmingham, Alabama, where it is still been in the 40s and 50s in January, so I'm not complaining, having grown up in the Midwest. So we're excited today. I have with me my co-host for the day, Hope Rometta. She's actually on my team. So Hope is our catastrophic resolution manager at Berkeley Industrial Comp. So she sees the worst of the worst and uh, wanted Hope to say hello to everybody. Hi, everybody. I am in Lexington, Kentucky, and it is cold and gross outside right now. Unfortunately, <laughs> it won't stop raining. So Hope and I go back a long way. We started at the same carrier and we're even on the same team. We started within three months of each other. So yeah, we've known each other a long time. So I'm glad to have her. Lucky on you. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. so I uh, longtime colleague and definitely a friend. And with us today as our special guest, I brought on the famous Heather Schwartz-Sanderson from the Sanderson Group, who has one of the best blogs out there on CMS and Medicare. So Heather, I wanted you to introduce yourself and say hello to everybody. Hi there, everyone. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm Heather Sanderson. I'm CEO of Sanderson Firm. We're a Medicare secondary payer compliance firm serving uh, the entire country. and. I'm in Florida. Braden's in Florida. For us, it's pretty cold. It's in the low 60s. And this Florida girl does not like it. I know that sounds uh, (laughs) pathetic, but I'm just being honest. (laughs) That's really funny. I picked up my son from a show choir practice last night. He's 15. So he had just like a tank top on. And when I picked him up, he's like, it's so cold out there. And I was like, it's 44, buddy. I'm like, this is not Michigan, Indiana weather. You, you can do right. this. So right. we're, we're getting soft. We're getting soft. Well, for those who don't know Heather, she's fantastic. The topic of Section 111 reporting has been out there. And I think there's a lot of concerns generally in the industry of what's going to happen. What are the fines like? What should we be doing to prepare for this? And I couldn't think of anybody better than asking Heather who as both an attorney and CEO of her company that handles Medicare compliance, because I think, you know, we all have these questions and want to know what we should be doing. And so we're going to spend some time on that today. But before we dive deep on that, Heather, I would love to hear how you got into the industry. I think I've asked you this before when I had you on several years ago, but I'm just guessing that like when you were at career day, you dressed up like an attorney and we're like, I'm going to be a section 111 expert on CMS, right? (laughs) I'd love to say that was the case. Yeah. I graduated law school in 2008, which we all know was a terrible, you know, recession year. So here I was amongst many other fresh law school graduates looking for a job, very competitive. And I called up this company in Bradenton, Florida, that was advertising for a corporate counsel. And they said, we do Medicare set-asides. And I said, what? (laughs) I have no idea what that is. I have no idea what that is. They were also doing Section 111 reporting, right, at the time. And that was just starting to kick off because Section 111 reporting, the law was enacted in 2007 and then became effective in 2010. So when I started, at the time the company was called Gould & Lamb, they're now operating as ExamWorks. In 2009, when I started with them, 
everybody was starting to get concerned, you know, about Section 111 reporting because the law had just been enacted. So it, it's, it was an interesting uh, career to dive into. The one thing I instantly liked about it, my, it's funny, my mother asked me about this the other day. She said, are you happy with the area of law you got into? And I said, yes, because it's always changing. It's always changing. You know, if I would have done real estate law, not, not knocking real estate lawyers, that's got to be pretty mundane and pretty routine. I mean, with this Medicare compliance, with MSAs, with Section 111 reporting, I'm constantly on my toes, seeing what's going to come next, you know, updating, you know, people on what's going on. As you mentioned, I love to blog and I love to write about the Medicare updates as they come down. And really the timing with starting Sanderson Firm was was pretty good because it seems like to me, and especially this last year in 2023, CMS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services became more proactive with Medicare secondary payer initiatives than I've ever seen in my entire career. And I think that there's so much more to come. So it's exciting. I love what I do. I really do. I really enjoy what I do. And I really enjoy, you know, helping folks kind of navigate the new requirements as they come down from CMS. That's awesome. We spend a lot of time working. So it's always amazing when you love what what you're doing. So for those who aren't familiar with Medicare compliance, can you explain how that intersects with the work comp world? Absolutely. Absolutely. So all of this stems from a federal law that was enacted in 1965, applicable to work comp plans, and then became applicable to general liability and no-fault plans in 1980, called the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. What the Medicare Secondary Payer Act is entailed to do in, as, in terms of work comp, if there's an available work comp payer, right? So if an injured worker gets hurt on the job and they are currently on Medicare, Medicare doesn't want to pay for that work comp injury-related care if the work comp payer is available to pay. Certainly, they will pay, right? If there's some reason that the the work comp coverage is not available at that time, Medicare will pay conditionally subject to repayment by the work comp payer, right? And they also want to be able to um, not only recoup their past payments that they've made, you know, while the work comp payer might not be available, but also Post-settlement, they want to be protected in not having to pay for future treatment post-settlement related to the injury. And that would be what your MSA is, your Medicare set-aside, right? Uh, That protects Medicare's future interests. So the intent behind the MSP Act, essentially, you know, the goal is obviously preservation of the Medicare trust fund. And the MSP is specifically intended to make sure that Medicare is a secondary payer where there's a primary work comp payer available whether it be pre or post settlement in the form of conditional payments or Medicare set aside. I know from a insurance perspective, when I think about all the insurance companies that are out there, no one feels bad taking money from insurance companies. And we know that Medicare is an issue where it may not be as funded as it should be. So I think that's one of the things that starts to keep us up at night is where's this going And what should we be doing to make sure we're in compliance so we don't find ourselves in a situation? I think everybody's nightmare situation is that we wake up one day and realize we owe Medicare hundreds of thousands of dollars because we didn't report something correctly or we didn't file something correctly. Can you speak a little bit to that, Heather? Sure. So, you know, as far as Section 111 reporting goes and what you could be doing now, just by way of background, for those of you that have not been closely following this, just this last October, October of 2023, Medicare issued their final rule on their civil money penalties that they can now leverage against work comp payers and also general liability and no-fault payers. 
for non-compliance with Section 111 reporting requirements. I mentioned to you all earlier that the Section 111 law in and of itself was passed in 2007, enacted in 2010. And then here we are in 2024, finally sitting with a final rule on the situations in which Medicare can penalize an insurer. So, you know, it was different to the final rule from the proposed rule that came out in 2020. It was a bit pared down, the final rule, which is a good thing for insurers. What Medicare is mostly focused on and in the areas that they would issue penalties against work comp insurers or self-insured work comp entities for are those situations where they fail to report timely. So there's really two main reporting elements in work comp, right? So the first element, when you get a claim, if you're a work comp payer and you accept a work comp claim, and you're going to be paying for that injured worker's medical treatment, you're supposed to flag what's known as ORM, which stands for Ongoing Responsibility for Medical. You're supposed to immediately flag that as why in your system. And that tells Medicare that there's a primary payer available so that they don't need to pay for that injury-related care during that time. So you need to flag that timely. That's one of the areas that Medicare focus on their final rule. If you report ORM more than one year late, that could cause a penalty to issue. So it's really important that for those of you that are working in claims that you're making sure to flag your ORM as why timely. Another important component is when, let's say that you go to, to settle out that work comp claim, that you're now terminating ORM. Now, I see a lot of confusion where people say, okay, well, I'm going to flag my ORM as now no, flip it from Y to no. No, that's not the correct way. If it was an accepted ORM, you now need to populate a termination date on that ORM when the ORM was terminated, when you no longer have responsibility for that claim. And it could be the settlement date. Let's assume there's a settlement, right? So you're now populating the ORM termination date. And then you also need to timely report your settlement. So that would be in the Medicare terminology world, a TPOC, total payment obligation to claimant, which essentially means your settlement judgment or award. And so what the final rule also says is that they want the TPOCs, the settlements to be reported timely. They're giving work comp payers a year of you know, bandwidth to not be penalized. So you can technically report your TPOCs up to a year late without being penalized. But anything beyond one year, we're looking at some crazy penalties. So Medicare just released what the new penalty scale will be with inflation from last year. So if you report a TPOC late more than one year, but less than two years, that's $357 per day per claim. If you report a TPOC late more than two years, but less than three years late, it's $714 per day per claim. And if you report a TPOC three years late or more, it now is $1,428 per day per claim. So $1,428 per day per claim. If you'll recall, and you might have learned about the final rule, it generally states $1,000 per day per claim. But what we're going to see every year is that amount goes up with inflation, which is why we're at $1,428 per day per claim. And it used to be without inflation that insurance carriers were capped at a max of $365,000 for you know failure to report one claim more than three years or more. But now with inflation, that amount sits at 521220 So that's a significant amount of penalties for just one claim that might be reported more than three years late. So just really going back to the key components of what Medicare was hyper-focused in on in their final rule is timely reporting of accepting ORM, timely reporting of settlements. You do get up to one year, but once you go beyond one year late, then that's some scary penalty uh, situations there. What I'm hearing you say is if I forget to, to do something or if one of my adjusters forgets to do something 
and three years or four years go by, we could be talking about half a million dollar yes. mistake, paperwork mistake. Yes. Well, yep. and I think too, when we're talking about this, we're thinking, you know, I hear, you know, but let's say I'm a, I'm a new adjuster and, and I'm not super familiar with Medicare. I hear Medicare, I think of old age, social security, right? Like I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I've got a young guy that I'm not needing to report on. Can you talk about the importance of reporting on all claims and what that looks like and why that exists? That's an excellent point. So, and I do encounter this misunderstanding a lot where I'll talk to, you know, people working on claims and they'll say, oh, they can't be on Medicare because they're not 65 yet. Well, most of your Medicare beneficiaries are going to be 65 and up, but there are a great deal of Medicare beneficiaries under the age of 65, particularly those that have been enrolled in Social Security disability for 24 months or longer. They're automatically enrolled into Medicare. So we see tons of Medicare beneficiaries in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So to Hope's point, it's really important that you query the Medicare status on all your claimants. Don't make assumptions about their Medicare status, because if you fail to report just one of them based upon your assumption that they're not on Medicare, that could result in a penalty. Most definitely. Definitely an easy thing to overlook as an adjuster. So going back to the penalties and and you outline that scale, can you talk to us about what date that goes into effect and how far back can they look at potential cases that maybe we've missed? It's an excellent question. So I hope everyone can breathe a, a brief sigh of relief. <laughs> so the law became, um, you know, essentially effective October 11, 2023. It, this gets where it gets a little confusing. It doesn't technically become applicable until October 11, 2024 which means we're not going to see penalties till 2025. So any settlements that occur before October 11th, 2024 are technically safe. It's going to be everything from October 11th, 2024 on and going forward that is subject to penalties. So theoretically, if you think that you've historically not reported everything and not everything is in tip-top shape, you're technically immune from these civil money penalties. However, I do think there's extreme value in making sure that you've reported all of your historical claims and settlements correctly, because while technically Medicare can't issue any penalties for any settlements that occur prior to October 11th of this year, 2024, if you've not reported the TPOC and you've not properly reported the claim, you've not yet triggered Medicare statute of limitations, right? Which means Medicare could recover in perpetuity on conditional payments. You want to always make sure that your historical claims have been reported because the reporting of the TPOC starts that three-year statute of limitations on Medicare's recovery for conditional payments. So I just want to make sure everyone understands, because we've had definitely some clients ask about that. Do we really need to go back and clean up the data, considering that Medicare is only going to issue penalties on settlements post-October 11, 2024? Technically, you're immune from penalties, right? These crazy penalties, but there could be other repercussions, such as you know the unlimited conditional payment exposure. Well, and, and the other thing I would point to that, Heather, is with adjusters, we're creatures of habit. And if we don't start building those habits, what I'm hearing you say is we've got nine months to build some really good habits. So when we cross that finish line, we're already doing things correctly because if the same habits that are present now for many carriers continue, it's going to be very expensive. Agreed. Agreed. Now is the time to get those practices in place for sure. So I think you alluded to maybe one tip for adjusters so far. Do you have any others? And and that tip was to do an inquiry on all of your cases, right? Don't make assumptions based on their age. 
as to whether or not they're a Medicare recipient. Do you have any other tips that you would recommend for a new adjuster that's maybe just learning about Medicare or even, heck, some of the old school adjusters that, you know, adjusted for many years prior to even Medicare being around, right? And we need to start developing new solid habits. Yeah. So one other thing that's really important, if for some reason you're not able to, at the onset of the claim should be querying, right? Determining Medicare status. Let's say for some reason you don't have the person's social security number or they're refusing to provide it. One other item that was in the final rule was that Medicare wants to see that the insurance company made at least three attempts to try and obtain the social security number. The first two attempts can be by email or like a written mailing. And the third attempt can be also by written email or actual letter or some other reasonable means, which is interesting. We're not really sure what other reasonable means means. But for some reason, if you have an uncooperative claimant unwilling to provide that information, make sure you document the file, right? A lot of the final rule said that in certain in instances, if Medicare was seeking to issue a penalty against an insurer, if they can demonstrate you know, good faith efforts to try and report the claim, then that would be mitigating evidence to kind of defend against these potential penalties. So I'd say document your efforts. Um, the other thing I'd recommend for either seasoned adjusters or new adjusters is to ask for help. It would be better to ask those questions, you know, as, as far as how to do things. So make sure you've got the Medicare status queried, make sure you're reporting ORM immediately. And so some of the things that have been utilized by some of my clients, I know, and I don't know how your system works over at Berkeley, but some claim systems kind of take the adjuster element out a little bit and just automatically flag all work comp claims as ORMY, just to make sure that they don't miss flagging that. So there's some, you know, claim system recommendations I could make because there's obviously the human element, right? And generally, Medicare claims are only about 10% of the work comp claims population, right? So on nine out of 10 cases, you're working, you're not thinking about Medicare. And then on that one that comes in, you might forget. So automatically flagging ORM is why maybe not allowing, you know, adjusters to move to next pages in your system if the termination date hasn't been entered, as well as making sure that there's flags in the system for failure to report TPOC. Other, you know, recommendations, just depending on how interested the person wants to be, but following the latest updates, right? Reading industry blogs, staying up on what's going on, and just asking questions where anything may seem unclear. That's great. Good, good advice. Is there any downfall to having them all flagged as yes for the ORM? In other words, let's say they're not a Medicare recipient, we flag it yes, but then there's no termination date posted or TPOC posted. Is there any harm in that because we didn't really need to report it? No, because if they're not currently a Medicare beneficiary, that ORM would just be simply in your claim system and it wouldn't go through to Medicare. So if you do set it up that way to automatically flag ORM as why, and let's say you have a denied claim, there would need to be some kind of check and balance in the system, right? Where you're able to flip it back to no, because obviously you don't want to tell Medicare you have primary payment responsibility if it's a fully denied claim. Sure. So it would be one area to, to be concerned with. But most, you know, generally most work comp claims are accepted for the most part. So in most cases, you would have the, you know, the right flag. Great points, Heather. If you could talk a little bit outside of just the, the legal advice your company can provide those who are feeling overwhelmed right now, because I'm guessing at this point, there's going to be a few listeners right now that are having heart palpitations <laughs> and are a little worried about how they're set up or what they're doing. 
Tell me a little bit about what the Sanderson Group can do for them or what your company offers so that if they're in that spot and they don't have the solutions they need or they're worried they don't, what you guys provide. Sure. Yeah. So we've been engaged by a number of companies to do like an audit, a Section 111 audit. We we look at historical data and trends and we've come up with some really interesting things that, you know, some of our clients are actually, you know, some are more savvy than others. And some of our Medicare savvy clients, we found some interesting, surprising things in the Section 111 data. We had one client we audited. They didn't know and they never reported TPOX on any work comp claims. They just thought that TPOX were applicable to only liability claims. Eye-opening, right? Majorly eye-opening. One of those great things of like, oh, okay, I don't know who put that in place historically before the person I was dealing with. You know, just really surprising, interesting things. We also had another client we audited. They were reporting their, their liability claims as no fault, which is a huge issue. But these are the kind of things that an audit can kind of uncover before Section 111 penalties come about. We are also a Section 111 uh, reporting agent. We report right now for nearly 100 responsible reporting entities, which I think is a good number considering we've been in business just three years. We have our own Section 111 tool. We call it Sanderson Comply. We actually announced it just a few months ago. It's our own proprietary system, and it's been around for more than 20 years. And what it does is it pre-validates the data before it gets sent to Medicare. So we're making sure that none of our clients are sending data with errors and we're only sending clean data to Medicare. We also incorporate a very consultative approach with our Section 111 reporting. What we found with most of our competitors in the, in the reporting agent space it's data in, data out, right? They're just taking in your data. They're sending it to Medicare. They're not looking at and identifying trends. Our reporting team gets on the phone like monthly with our clients, identifies trends in the data, the errors that they're getting back from Medicare, and really helps them walk through what, what are the critical errors that we need to correct now, right? So we're really very hands-on and very consultative with that from, from a Section 111 perspective. But as a whole, also as a law firm, we also do offer Medicare set-asides as well and conditional payment resolution and disputes. And the Medicare Advantage plans are the ones that are keeping us really busy right now. That's a whole nother discussion for another day, but that's been interesting, especially post-Paid Act in 2021 initiative. I think that's what we talked about when we, I last did the podcast with you a couple of years ago. Yeah, that is right. Yeah. That is right. Well, do you expect we're going to see any more changes to CMS going forward? Yeah, there's there's some more things on the horizon. So, you know, with the implementation of these penalties, there's a lot of questions. So Medicare is hosting a webinar. For those of you that have, you know, questions, they're hosting a webinar this month on questions on reporting. We're going to continuously see updates to reporting requirements as time goes on. Last year, Medicare updated their user guide for reporting, I think about four or five times. So I expect to continue to see changes there. They also announced at the end of last year, a potential requirement for entities to report MSAs via the Section 111, which was really interesting. They've never, right? So we, when we do the Section 11 reporting, there's 165 data fields going over to Medicare on each claim, right? But never historically has Medicare asked a work comp payer to populate in the Section 111 data the actual Medicare set-aside amount that they've paid a Medicare beneficiary. So they announced just last year that they're going to have more to come on that in 2024, and they may put this in place in 2025, which would be interesting. So they want to know about both submitted MSA amounts and non-submitted MSA amounts. 
I actually, um, when we were on this webinar, when CMS asked, uh, told the industry about this, I actually asked them the question, why would you need a work comp payer to, if they submitted the MSA to CMS and CMS approved the MSA, why do you need the work comp payer to additionally report the MSA amount again to CMS, right? Theoretically, CMS already has this MSA information because they've approved an MSA. And what they said was that what they're finding in a lot of scenarios where they approve an MSA, the work comp payer is not following up post-settlement and sending in a finalized copy of the settlement documents demonstrating that they funded the MSA amount. So they were not able to really close the loop because they would approve an MSA and then not hear anything ever again. And they don't know whether actually the parties move forward with the MSA. So it seems like they're just trying to get more clarity into what's happening and get more data. And I expect that to continue. They did say this would be a potential requirement. And they said that numerous times throughout the webinar. So I'll be interested to see if they actually do implement this. This would require system changes, right? So all reporting agents, all companies that report internally would have to add this additional field to report this MSA amount. So my guess is that I think they'll move forward on this requirement, but I'm not sure it'll be in the swift timeframe that they're thinking. I think it might be a little bit longer than 2024 or 2025. But yeah, on that front, I, I continue to, we'll continue to see more on that. I do wonder too, if that make will make it easier for them to audit what has been like, you know, what was funded versus what was, has been paid out, right? Meaning whether or not they've used all the MSA funds, right? And if we did it adequately, if we, if we truly funded things adequately. Yeah. I mean, I think so once Medicare approves an MSA or let's say a party's use a non-submit MSA, you know, they're still supposed to be sending in an annual accounting. Let's say they self-administer and they don't use a professional administrator. They're supposed to be sending in an annual accounting of how they're spending their funds on an annual basis. My guess is that on those self-administered MSAs, Medicare is not getting those annual accountings. I think with the professional administrators, certainly, because that's what they do and they know how to do that. But I don't think they're they're able to look at that. I don't think that they're trying to target non-submit MSAs with this potential reporting requirement. I think so long as, you know, the parties can prove that the non-submit MSA was adequate and appropriately, you know, protected Medicare's interests and it would still stand up and be fine. I think they just want to understand how much to coordinate benefits up to, right? Because if the parties report a $30,000 MSA, whether it's a submitted MSA or a non-submitted MSA, Medicare wants to coordinate benefits, meaning deny injury-related care until they can see that whole $30,000 MSA expended, right? And I think that's also an area they're having trouble with because they can't coordinate benefits post-settlement because they don't know about all the MSAs that are being established in these settlements, whether they're submitted or not submitted. Interesting. Heather, I really appreciate all the information you share with us today. I know this is one that we get asked about a lot. I know it's a hot topic. I also know it's one that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, even in claims leadership positions. And I would just really recommend folks, if you don't know, ask. Don't wait and find out later. And Heather's team's great. There are others in the industry that are great. But just a quick reminder on that, since I know this is one that we get asked about a lot. And it's one that those who aren't in claims who are maybe presidents of companies have a lot of nervousness about because they don't understand all the nuances. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. This year, one of the things I've wanted to do is I wanted to end every episode with, I always just really feel like putting positive vibes out in the universe is a good thing. And there's so much negativity on television and things we see, and a lot of it's real. 
So the little thing that I can do to counter that is just put something positive out there. And so what I'd like to do this season is ask each of our guests to share somebody that really impacted them in a positive way. It could be your career, it could be in your personal life, but you know what they did or who they were that, that really impacted you for good. And so I'm curious, Heather, who that would be today for you. Yeah. So I would say, you know, at my former company, when I was previously chief legal officer of Franco Signor for six years before their sale to Veris. And then that was when I started Sanderson Firm. But Roy Franco, who was one of the owners and founders of Franco Signor, made a tremendous impact on me. When I started working there, I'd already been in the industry for quite a while. But what really impacted me and really stuck with me, and it's kind of become ingrained in me, is this advocacy and this fierce advocacy for the insurance industry with regard to MSP. He was instrumental. And I was I, I was there at the time when we got the SMART Act enacted. So that was the first reform to the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, putting a statute of limitations in. And then the PAID Act was actually his idea. And I got to go to the Hill and we we actually got that law passed. And that was his brainchild completely. And it was so much fun to support it. And to see, you know, an action, you know, be put to work. And so now just recently, ironically, I had a client come to me, they, they've got an issue with proposals for settlements in Florida. If you make a proposal for settlement, you're stuck with that amount. If it's accepted, you can't add in any terminology as to Medicare liens or anything like that. So they're really, they're stuck with this monetary amount, but they're exposed from a federal st- standpoint. And my initial thought is like, I want to go change the law. I want to go approach the Florida legislature And I want to talk to them about why they need to change the proposal for settlements to allow for parties to include Medicare language so that they're protected. That's initially where my brain went. And I thought, oh, I've become a little mini Roy. So thank you, Roy. If you ever listen to this podcast, thank you for leaving that impression upon me. And I will continue to advocate for our clients because I think at times there's a disconnect with what's in the law and it's really, truly unfair. So I love that. I love that. Very cool. The world needs more people who are going to mentor and help out. And we all learn from others. So great, great, great example. Well, Heather, I just really appreciate having you on the episode today. Hope as well. If folks want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get hold of you, Heather? Sure. Yeah. My email address is heather at sandersoncomp.com. We can also visit our website at www.sandersoncomp.com. I would love it though, if you're just interested in following MSP or MSAs and what's going on in that whole world, Section 111 reporting, we have a blog as we mentioned earlier. And we also host webinars regularly. We're going to be doing a webinar on MSAs in early February. So we've got a lot of free knowledge out there that we offer. And we're, we're always up to date on all, the, on all the CMS updates. So please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. No problem. We appreciate you taking the time. And I just remind our listeners our uh, motto to do right, think differently, and don't forget to care. And that's it for this episode. And we hope you'll join us on future episodes that air every two weeks on Monday. We've been doing this for three years, so you can kind of count on it. It will show up on Monday. So um, we're on all the major streaming platforms. So find us wherever you like to stream and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Mm -hmm.